We're in Job 35. It's uh, 16 verses waiting for justice. And I'm going to lead us into tonight's study with a verse that I would like to be the foundation of our prayer. And it is in Job 34, 32. So go ahead and locate that verse, Job 34, 32. And it reads, Teach me what I do not see. Let's pray. Father, each time we come to your holy word, this verse is a verse that has jumped off the page for me, not just last Wednesday, but really thinking about it just as a prayer for my Christian life, a prayer as I approach your word, a prayer as I try to understand your ways, a prayer as I try to grasp your nature. Your ways are higher than my ways because you are higher than I. You are God, I am not. <laughs> and because that is true, because you spoke the universe into existence, because you dwell in unapproachable light, because you are, according to the writer of Hebrews, a consuming fire, because the angels sang in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the whole earth is full of his glory, and so many more things that could be said and pondered about your nature. This directly applies to our walk with you and to confusion when it comes to the problem of evil. And we've been really wrestling with that as we've gone deep into the book of Job. And uh, I think for probably everybody in this room, this, this may be the first time they've ever gone verse by verse through this book. Uh, in a complete study like this, and thank you for that we've been able to share it. Uh, as Shane mentioned, it's not the easiest content, but it is so relevant, so important, because it's the deep questions of life. It's the problem of evil. It's why. What about God's timing? Does he care? How can I understand my current circumstances or even what's led me to this point? And so I just pray that you would have your way tonight. Teach us what we do not see. For your glory in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, Elihu is the last of the human comforters, so to speak, or friends that speaks into the life of Job. As I've mentioned in the last few studies, he's the youngest, and he has waited his turn to speak. At the end of chapter 34, you'll get a little bit of a taste of his appeal. He says, 34, 34, men of understanding will say to me, and a wise man who hears me, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit, because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Now, that's the last part of the last chapter, and you could see that Elihu's not thrilled with Job, and he's really given him the business, so to speak. He's taken him to the woodshed, for things that Job has said or accusations that he has made about God. I want you to hold that thought, and I want you to turn to Isaiah, which is going to be to your right. So you're going to, uh, just a little bit before Jeremiah, Job has been waiting, he's been questioning. You want Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40. And he's got questions like this. Why have I bothered to live a good life? When we're suffering, that's sometimes what we ask. Isaiah 40 is what you want. 
why have I bothered to, to live a good life? Does God see my situation? And if he does, does he care about me? In Job's case, even worse, have I become God's enemy for some reason unknown to me? Has he set his target sights on me and yet I don't even know what I've done? These have been the questions all the way along. And in Isaiah 40, verse 27, the people of God were asking these kinds of questions in the light of the Babylonian captivity, 70 years of captivity under Babylon. And this is what is said back to them as they wonder about God's care for them. This is Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, or Israel, and assert, if you have the NIV, why do you complain, O Israel, saying, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Why do you say that, Isaiah 40, 27? I think one of the things that we could say about the book of Job is that we ought to watch what we say. <laughs> and we should be careful what we say, especially in dark, confusing times. Because in moments of dark, confusing times, we've either said things to the heavens or things to people in our home or our workplace or our spheres of influence. Some of us have gotten on social media and vented. <laughs> Some of us have written emails and pressed send and then had huge regrets. What did I just do? <laughs> right? And this is where we need to be careful as human beings because we just don't understand everything. God has his ways and he has his timing. And in Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, he says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. But remember that verse is written right after Jeremiah 29, 11. We love the verse, but remember it's written to a group of people that God says it's going to take 70 years until I restore you back to the land, until I visit my good purposes upon you. 70 years. I don't know how long Job has been suffering, but let's just assume for a moment it's been more than 70 days. Let's just assume maybe it's been seven months. I don't know what your clock looks like and how quickly you want God to respond to your prayers, but I know how quickly I want him to respond to my prayers. And it's usually me tapping my foot. Can we get on with the program here? <laughs> right? And, of course, Israel was saying that, and the prophet says, Do you not know Isaiah 40, 28? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, his understanding is inscrutable. Don't you know this? For most of us, it's not that we don't know, it's that we forget and get distracted. Maybe we think, you know, does God even see my situation? Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's tired of hearing my prayers. Maybe he's tired of me whining. <laughs> but God doesn't get tired. He's not like us. He's not somewhere taking a nap. He's not nodding off. He's not going, oh, oh, can we get on with this? That's not God. He never gets tired. He is constantly refreshed. How many of you would like that vitamin? <laughs> and you know what? When we are glorified, 
I think we're going to experience at least, I don't know how much of that reality, but I would imagine it's going to be a beautiful thing. My promises, says one writer, commenting on Isaiah 40 and where we're heading, can give you liftoff so that you rise on eagle's wings. Let me show you how. See, what we need renewed is our hope and our strength. We need it right now. We need to understand that God is not sleeping. In fact, verse 29 of Isaiah 40 says, He gives strength to the weary, power to the faint, ESV. It means when we fall under life's pressures, God delights in giving us strength. To him who lacks might, he increases power. If you ever studied this small section, this main, the main theme on the human side is people who are uh, just kind of failing under the weight of life's circumstances. And the prophet comes in and speaks to those circumstances, reminding them of who God is. God gives strength to the weary. God gives power in my weakness. Though youths grow weary, verse 30, and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who what? Those who hope or wait for the Lord, the Hebrew word can mean either, and it can be a combination, like hopeful waiting. In the Lord, what will they do? They will gain, they will renew their strength, they will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired, they will walk and not become weary. When you wait on the Lord... God will do something impossible in your life because to mount up with wings like eagles is impossible for me as a human being. I can't do that. Some of us have had, you know, these ideas that it would be cool to fly. It'd be cool to be a bird maybe one day and be able to fly as long as no one was shooting a shotgun at you, right? And, and this idea of mounting up with wings like eagles and taking flight is something impossible for me. How could I ever fly above my circumstances? The Bible says it's in hopeful waiting. It's in another phrase, and I would encourage you to write this down. It's in active dependence on God. Active dependence is similar to hopeful waiting. And active dependence means that I am leaning into God, and I've been suggesting to you that times when we lean into God the most are times when we feel the weakest. Amen? Even though I've told you that we don't enjoy thinking about those things or saying those things, the Christian life is a life where you die to your own power. You lift up your eyes to the mountains and you say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Now in the book of Job, uh, as we are invited to hear the last speaker speak into the life of Job. Uh, Elihu has been speaking, and he is going to tell Job that he's just going to have to wait because Job cannot demand God to move quicker than God's going to move. <laughs> I'll give you a quick, funny example. I heard about um, a church that was having a, a kind of a Pentecost meeting and they were going to call the Holy Spirit down in a special way. And, and some suggestions kind of coming down around that, which is that, you know, you can, that Pentecost happened because of the prayers of the people who were gathered. And I had to just chuckle and say, no, Pentecost happened because it was a festival on God's calendar on the day that he had already pre-selected. <laughs> 
The people didn't pray the Holy Spirit down. God said, get ready, because on this day, this is what I'm going to do. And it was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits was the Feast of Pentecost, and it happened exactly on the calendar when God marked his calendar. See, I'm not manipulating God's calendar. God wants me to be adjusted to his calendar. Can I get a witness? See, the Christian life is not about getting my will done on earth. It's about getting God's will done on earth and in heaven and me aligning my will to his will. This is what's going on in the Christian life. Just in case you wondered. <laughs> See, God, and we're going to talk about this on Sunday, says he wants to conform you into the image of him, not have you conform him into the image of you. Ooh, that's so hard. But see, this is the Christian life. And Elihu will continue to speak to Job and challenge Job. Now, we all have compassion for Job because he's been so beat up for so long. We're like, can somebody just be gracious to the guy for 15 minutes? And, of course, we've said the other comforters did lack in their comforting. All they did is make accusations against Job, and we've got to balance that. But I think all of us in this room could say a word spoken truthfully in the right setting is life-changing. And a lot of it, what Elihu says, even though he's certainly not God, can be considered as straight talk that Job needs to hear. In fact, some of what Elihu says is preparing Job to hear from God. Elihu continued, this is back in Job 35.1, and said, do you think this is according to justice? Do you say, he's addressing primarily Job, my righteousness is more than God's? If you have an ESV, Job 35.2 says, it is my right before God, NIV, I will be cleared by God. New Living Translation, I am righteous before God. Elihu is challenging Job's declarations. Job did not say specifically, my righteousness is more than God, but he has fervently defended his innocence before God. And Job feels like God should meet his demands. Uh, there's a scene back in the first Indiana Jones movie where the Nazis, uh, they capture the ship where the Ark of the Covenant has been hidden away. And the German leader comes onto the boat and the captain of the vessel who's tr trying to sneak Indiana Jones and his girlfriend and the Ark of the Covenant away says, uh, you know, leave the girl with us. It will diminish our losses on this particular trip. And the the German leader says, oh, you're in no position to negotiate. We will take everything we desire, and then we'll decide whether or not to blow your ship out of the water. Do you sometimes get the idea that people think they can make demands of God? <laughs> it's my right! We're big into rights as Americans. I understand it. We all appreciate the rights and privileges of U.S. citizenship. However, in God's kingdom, <laughs> you may be knocking for a long time if you're going to demand your rights, right? God is gracious to us, but Job is being challenged that God doesn't owe him anything. For you say, verse 3, he's quoting back Job, 
What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? New living. For you also ask, what's in it for me? What's the use of living a righteous life if this is what you get for it? Can you imagine being Joseph in the Egyptian prison? And he says, why did I bother to resist Potiphar's wife? Maybe I should have just given in because what did I get for it? I got a prison sentence and got falsely accused. Can I ask you a question? Why do you live a righteous life? And I'm hoping that you do. Do you do it to earn brownie points with God? Do you do it because you'll think you get blessings in return? Or do you do it because it's the right thing to do to honor God no matter what comes your way? Now, I want to say this because I heard a phone call. Uh, a lady called into an uh, answer program, you know, Bible questions and answers, and she, she asked the question of the host, is it right when I give my offering on a Sunday to attach what I want uh, as a result of my offering? Like, for example, could I submit my offering and say, as I give my offering, I want a new car? And I'm not joking, this is what she said, and I've come to find out that some churches, when they take their offering, say to the congregation, put on the offering envelope what you want as you give this offering. Uh, would you just ponder that for a second? What would you like as you give your offering? A new car! Almost sounds like a game show, doesn't it? Come on down! A new car! <laughs> and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, does God want to bless his people? Yes. Does the Bible say he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly? Yes. But I don't see Bible verses that say submit your offering envelope with a new car. <laughs> Wait a minute, that sounds like a give to get scheme. And if you are living a righteous life, do not live that righteous life to get something from the master. That's nonsense. That's trying to pull the right button. So if I live righteously, what's in it for me? Can I quote another old classic movie? Field of Dreams. End of the movie. How many of you have seen Field of Dreams? Kevin Costner. They want to bring the old writer out to the corn. And Kevin Costner says, I want to go. And Shoeless Joe says, you can't go. There's no place for you out here. You can't go. And he says, but I want to go. I want to see what's out there. You guys are in my corn. <laughs> You're all living in my corn. What are you saying, Ray? Are you asking what's in it for me? Is that why you built this field? Is that why you did all, thing, all these things? What's in it for me? And finally he admits, yeah, what's in it for me? And Shoeless Joe says, you better stay here, Ray. <laughs> Now, if you've seen the movie, you realize that the whole story has been about the pain that the son has felt in losing his father and not being able to go to the funeral. And the film's not theologically correct, but it's, it's compelling. And at the end of the movie, his dad appears and his pain gets eased. But we don't live the way we're supposed to live, brethren, to get goodies from God. Now, God gives us plenty of frosting on the cake, does he not? 
I mean, we're all, we're all a blessed group of people. But we don't do what we do. We don't live a righteous life just so that we can get blessings. We don't say, well, maybe I should just start sinning because this Christian life isn't working out because I'm not getting the blessings that I was promised if I lived the right way. No, live the right way because you want to honor your father. But someone might say, but surely there's a reward for obedience, right? I mean, doesn't the book of Proverbs promise that if you're obedient and you live a righteous life, you'll be blessed? Sure it does. But it doesn't guarantee you that. And the book of Job is all about a man who did that and still got ravaged by disaster. (laughs) That's what we've been studying together. And that's why we realize that this book is deep and profound. See, Job is wondering if God just treats the righteous and the wicked the same, if it doesn't really matter in the end. What what then? Uh, This is Job, I think it's 924. It says, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? How, How do I make sense of what's happening to me? How do I make sense of the fact that it seems like the righteous and the wicked get the same treatment, even though I've tried to live a blameless life. Well, Elihu says, I will answer you. He's quoted Job, and your friends with you. He says, if you want a remedy, if you're going through your own question marks in your life right now, if you're asking some tough questions about the nature of God and the problem of evil, Elihu's remedy to Job is to look at the heavens, 35.5, And see, and behold the clouds, they are higher than you. Now one thing that Elihu wants Job to do, and this is important for you and me if you're taking notes, is to look up again. But to look up with a consideration of the heavens above and the earth below. This is a pondering of God's transcendence. God transcends Uh, what I understand. His ways are higher than my ways. He's God. And he's accomplishing purposes and things that I don't completely understand. And notice some of the, uh, the calls here. It's to look at the heavens and see. It's to behold the clouds. For some of us who live in the Inland Empire, the last time we looked up was when we went on a trip to the mountains. And we went, oh, They're stars. (laughs) Look at that. There's more than four of them up there. Oh, they're always there. The problem is that there's stuff that keeps us from seeing them in the Inland Empire and L.A. and so forth. They're there. We just don't see them. And so what Elihu tells Job is that you need to look up again, man. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display what? Knowledge. This is an invitation to reponder what you believe about God. See, for many of us, our God is way too small. Amen? We think God's just like us. He's not like us. He spoke the universe into existence. He holds it all together by the word of his power. 
He's majestic in his ways. In Psalm 8, turn over there. Let me remind you of something that, this is just a little bit to the right, Psalm 8, next, next book. David, and David had a lot of problems, right? He created some of his own problems, but what was one of the major problems for David in his life? A guy named Saul. Saul was a nut! <laughs> he became so jealous of David, and David was so righteous about not killing Saul when he had opportunities and trying to honor him. David went through a lot of stuff, and a lot of the Psalms are David crying out to God in confusion. And he says, Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You see, when David reconsiders the heavens and looks at the stars and everything that God has made, there's a humility that floods the life of any human because you start to say, if I'm making demands to God in heaven, what right do I have to make demands anyway? And what does God really owe me? See, we feel that God owes us something. But God is in the heavens. He's transcendent. He's above us. I want you to turn back to Job and flip ahead to chapter 38. So go back to the book of Job. 38 is where God begins to answer Job. And as Elihu kind of sets, uh, blazes the trail for God's speech to Job, <clears throat> here's what God says to Job, and this is Job 38, 31. Job 38, 31. He says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? 38, 32 of Job, God addressing Job. Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an, an abundance of water may cover you? Can you, Job, send forth lightnings that they may go and, and say to you, here we are? Who has put uh, wisdom in the innermost being or has given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? When we're in a tough spot, sometimes we just need to look up again. We need to consider who our God is. And what's so amazing about our God is that he came down to us, amen, in the person of Jesus Christ. This is amazing. Now in Job 35, if you turn back there, Elihu continues to challenge Job, and he says, 35.6, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if you, your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, notice there's the direct address to Job, if you have sinned, if you are righteous, 35.7, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Job has been saying, but I've been blameless, but I've been innocent, but I've been a good boy, I've been a good boy. <laughs> He's trying to apply some of the Santa Claus theology. I've been a good 
good boy, but a good little girl. Please don't give me a lump of coal. But Elihu says, but what does your behavior do to affect God? If you have a bad day, does God have a bad day? If you're a good little boy, does God say, oh, I feel better about the entire universe now? Look at Job. Now, God was bragging on Job, but remember, remember Elihu's talking about the transcendence of God, and he's saying essentially, whether you send up a storm, Job, or you lived a righteous life, that doesn't twist God's arm. That doesn't make him move to do something per se. Now, we do know that God is honored by good behavior. He bragged on Job at the beginning of the book. He says in Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. In Psalm 7, he, it says that God, 11, is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God does not like evil. And in some way, you could say, yeah, it does impact him. But in an ultimate way, it's not going to move him one way or the other. God is God. He's on his own timetable. And he doesn't have surprise or shock in his personality. Whoa, I can't believe that just happened. Right? He, he, he never is caught by surprise like, wow, look at that. No, he doesn't operate that way. Remember, God's not you. I know that happens to me and you. And oftentimes I say this to people in the ministry, just when I think I've seen everything, then I see something else. And I'm like, no way. And somebody next to me goes, way. It's true. It's happening. And that's my humanity, but that's not God. And that's what Elihu is saying. He's saying, no. Your wickedness is for a man like yourself. Your righteousness is for a son of man. Eight in the new living. No, your sins affect only people like yourself, Elihu says to Job. And your good deeds also affect only humans. Now remember, Elihu is a man, and the Bible is correctly uh, documenting what he says. Human deeds for good or ill work out their consequences in society, says Elihu. Elihu's argument is not that moral deeds have no spiritual significance, but rather that they cannot be used, says one writer, to persuade or compel God. Elihu is not suggesting that God does not care how Job lives his life. Of course he cares. But Job's been making that, hit, that his main argument for God answering him now. He wants God to answer his case now. And Elihu's saying you can't do that. Because of the multitude, verse 9, of the oppression, they cry out, they cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. Well, you might say, and Job certainly implied this or said it directly, what about people that are oppressed all over the world and cry for help? What about those situations? And since Job is in that situation, feeling like he's been oppressed and unjustly treated, he's been crying for help. Why doesn't God hear those cries? I wonder how many people around the world at this moment of time are crying out for answers, crying out from a prison cell, crying out from an abusive home, 
crying out from a broken, disastrous marriage, crying out from, you know, struggles with demonic, uh, you know, oppression or possession. And then you can walk this out, right? There's a lot of stuff going on at a given moment of time. Someone who's just lost a loved one, someone perplexed by a diagnosis, etc., etc. What goes on there? Well, here's what Elihu says. <clears throat> he says, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Now, Elihu's answer is that the people that are largely crying out in these situations are not crying out in faith to God. I'll let you chew on that. But there's, it's been said that there's no atheists in foxholes. But sometimes when the cries go up, the cries are not, oh God, I'm so sorry that I haven't known you for the first four decades of my life and I want to get things right. It's more like this. God, get me out of here! If there's a God up there, get me out of this one! And we start negotiations, right? We start saying, and if you will, if you're out there, whether you're a he or she, do you hear people say this? Well, whoever you are, just come and rescue me. And then what do we, what do we say usually happens after that? Thanks a lot. <laughs> See you next emergency. Maybe, maybe Ellie, who's on to something? Maybe a lot of the cries and a lot of the struggles in this world don't really bring someone genuinely to God. It's more like an escape hatch. However, I will say that some of us in this room were born again in a difficult situation and we said, oh God, I want to know you. And maybe God gave you verse 10 of Job 35, a song in the night. When I was teaching the book of Job, I was thinking of songs like Spafford's It Is Well With My Soul, Bart Millard's I Can Only Imagine, Jeremy Camp's song I Still Believe as his young wife died of cancer, Shane Lance's song I Am Not Forsaken. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, began to pray to the Lord, and that, that section of Jonah 2 is called Jonah's song. And if your difficulty drives you to the living God, praise God, amen? But Elihu is arguing, and of course he's talking to Job directly, that Job, if you've got an issue with God not responding to your cry, maybe the problem is you. And of course we know Job's a righteous man who loves God, so we've got to be careful now how we interpret what Elihu says. But he's implying that when Job's crying out, it's not that Job really wants to repent and get closer to God. He just wants to get out of his problems. And I have to say on a human level, I don't know what drives my prayers the most when I'm in trouble. Because even though I know my trials and difficulties can drive me to a closer relationship with God, I have to really weigh my motives when I pray. Anybody else? Like, what am I really looking for here? Do I just want to get out of this one or get the burden lifted from me or... Is, this, is my heart's cry, I want to know my maker. 
give me a song in the night. Just on a practical level, when suffering comes and when we are struggling with different things, night times can get really long, especially if you struggle with sleeping when, you're, when you have anxiety. And that's where we need songs in the night. You say, what does that mean, Pastor Mike? Do I turn on the radio? I mean, what are you talking about? Well, in the Bible, songs are, there's 150 psalms in the songbook in our Bibles called the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. So could I encourage you, maybe the next time you can't sleep, and I'll encourage myself, maybe it's a psalm that I need to muse upon. Amen? Maybe the Lord will speak to me through that. Maybe he'll show me something I wouldn't have seen had I been in a deep REM sleep, although I enjoy my REM sleep very much. <laughs> Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth? He goes on. Makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. You say, what does this mean? Well, when we're crying out to God and looking for God, sometimes what God shows us is things in everyday life. You see, sometimes we just need to look at the birds and consider the lilies of the field. Would you turn to Luke 12? Luke 12, hold your place in Job. <clears throat> what can we learn when we're going through trials, when things are a bit scarce, when we really, really have to trust God? when we're really uncomfortable, if God doesn't come through, this isn't going to happen kind of faith. Here's Luke 12, 21. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 12, 22, For this reason I say to you, don't be anxious for your life. As to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food and the body than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you, you are, than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Jesus speaking, if then you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Consider the lilies of the field, or the lilies, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of what? Little faith. And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Remedy, seek first his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. When we are so wrapped up with the things that we think we need or the struggles that we're having, and again, it's very human to be so, um, God may be speaking to us about things that we need to learn in the trial. Back to the book of Job. What 
does he want to teach you? I don't know everything that he wants to teach you, but I'll tell you this, probably things that you do not see. Amen? That was Job 34, 32. Teach me things that I do not see. Now, we just have a few verses left. We're back in verse 12 of Job 35. There they cry out, but he does not answer. And Elihu says, one of the reasons that God doesn't answer, added to the others that we've just visited, is because of what? The pride of evil men. Elihu adds in verse 12, Job 35, that when people cry out, some people don't cry out in faith, some people don't cry out to know their maker, but some people, when they cry out, it's a prideful cry. And this is surely a direct shot at Job. Elihu's essentially saying, I think you're prideful, and I think that's why God hasn't answered you yet. And pride can be such a slippery thing because pride is an inordinate sense of my importance. And if it relates to God, my importance in God's eyes. And God is no respecter of what? Of persons. He's not partial. So it's not like it's my performance or all of that that's going to get his favor. And if pride gets in there and it's something like this, as I speak up to the heavens, I deserve an answer. I deserve this. And we start making our demands. Elihu believes that's why God doesn't respond. In Elihu's view, and he's going to say this in verse 16, he accuses Job of opening his mouth emptily is the word, or vainly. How much less when you say you do not behold him, 14, the case is before him, Elihu says, and you, you must wait for him. He's not waiting for you, you must wait for him. I waited for the Lord on high. I waited and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry clay. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Why do you think God makes us wait? Because we're Americans. <laughs> we have clocks in the fast food line. How many of you could say, I've been in the fast food line. The clock passes two minutes. I don't even know. If, do they have the clock still? I don't even know why they ever did that. And I'm like, where did they go to get this burrito? Mexico? Come on. Right? It's two minutes. You just ordered food. You use an electronic thing to pay with a card. You can't wait five minutes for your piping hot burrito and fries? No, I can't. I'm on a schedule. Look at who we are. It used to be that people had to go get stuff from the field and maybe even slaughter an animal to eat. Oh, no, 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 no. Not us. We wait for no man. Well, I have news for you, Christian. God ain't going to wait on you. You're going to wait on him. And you say, but why do I have to wait? Because there's blessing in the waiting. How much have we learned in the waiting? How many times have you gotten ahead of God, done things on your own, plowed through some doors? Yeah, that's an open door. Step back. I'll just 
light this bomb off. <laughs> yeah, it's open, see? And you plowed through, and God wasn't there on the other side of that door. What happened? I was reading another pastor, and he was talking about a season that his church went through, and he would say, and I, this is me, he's a visionary, and he's a dreamer, and he was casting vision for his fellowship, but he said in a season of the church's life, he got ahead of God. And the one thing that he said is that he failed to love the way God had called him to love. So we have, we have our plan, and we, we want to walk it out. You're going to apply this to your life. But God's trying to do some other things in your life that don't have to do with bullet point lists all the time. They don't have to do with the culmination of your dreams. Not that God doesn't care about that. But God's, God's doing a work to conform you into the image of his son. And if you, walk, if you watch Jesus walking through the Gospels, Jesus' priorities are very different than much of mine. I mean, he would stop for a, a, a nobody in that society because he had a divine appointment just with that one person who nobody else even wanted to talk to. That's our God. Teach me to see the things that I do not see. See, this is what God does in the waiting. And Elihu says, your case is before him. You got to wait. And now, 15, because he has not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression well, so Job opens his mouth emptily, ESV, in empty talk, he multiplies words without knowledge. Now when God addresses Job, flip over to chapter 38, we're winding down, here's what the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind, he says, 38.2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge the same thing that elihu said of job god says of job and while we have to be careful and discerning sometimes god brings people into our life to set some groundwork to open our ears to what god is about to say or do in our lives have you ever experienced that you get some kind of like a foretaste of it and again, we need discernment here, but Elihu says, your talk is empty, Job. As righteous as a man as you are, you don't understand everything. Out of my notes, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah 25, which is back to your right. We'll finish with this, but here's some thoughts out of my notes for you just to consider. What do we learn from Job 35? One thing is that we don't see everything. Uh, God is working, and just because I can't see it or understand it doesn't mean he is not. He is God. He is above. I am simply hum human. It can help me in areas of humility and trust to wait on God and to even consider the beast and the birds so that I don't stress out unnecessarily. Perhaps I need to stop making demands and start realizing that God works through my trials to teach me things there too. Submission to him and his ways is my heart's desire. But boy, how many times I have failed. Here's what I need to know. Jesus is coming again, Isaiah 25. Everything's gonna be made right that's been wrong. 
And until he comes, I'm going to wait with expectant, hopeful waiting. Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, 25, 1. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will give thanks to thy name, for thou hast worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For thou hast made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore a strong people who glorify thee, cities of ruthless nations will revere thee. For thou hast been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in a drought, verse 5, thou dost subdue the uproar of aliens, like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, verse 7, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Can we say it together? Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter, chapter 35 of Job, waiting for your justice, waiting here for you, with our hands lifted high in praise. It's you we adore. And we sing hallelujah. We're waiting here for you, Lord. We're waiting for that day when you come again and you promise to come again and you promise new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And until those promises are realized and they are simply just gonna happen when your calendar says they are and until they're realized, we wait, but we wait with hopeful waiting. Would you renew our strength tonight, Lord? so we can mount up with wings like eagles, so we can run and not be weary or spiritually tired or feel like we want to just hang it up right now. I can't go on. Some people are feeling that way even tonight. They don't know if they could do it again. And you're saying, I'm going to renew your strength. I want you to lean into me. I want you to wait with hopeful waiting. I am working out my plan. I am coming again. I'm going to wipe away your tears. I'm going to make new heavens and new earth. And it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, not if, but when. Oh, would you renew our faith, Lord, tonight? So we can soar with the breath of your spirit. Would you help us, teach us to calm down and know that you are God? Help us to look up again if we need to do that. To look afresh and ponder who our God is. And how willing you were to come down and save us and die on that cross. Oh Lord, even in this last song, would you refresh the faith in this room, in our hearts. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.